Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here returned from vacation with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. So we've got a lot of stuff to share this week. We're going to have our next installment of the Little Gold Men Book Club about Joan Didion's The Last Thing He Wanted. And then we've got two interviews to share. Mike talked to Josh Sapin, the president and chief executive officer of AMC Networks, who's kind of been at the forefront of peak TV and all of the interesting things associated with it. And then in another collaboration with the Talk House podcast, we're going to be sharing a snippet of a conversation between Lulu Wong, the director of The Farewell, which has been one of the huge indie hits of the summer. We've talked about it a few times. And Ruben Oslin, the Swedish director who made a Force Majeure and The Square. It's a really interesting chance to hear two filmmakers talk to each other, which I think we don't get enough of. Before we get into any of that, though, a trailer broke right before we started recording. Uh, it's our first look at Netflix's Marriage Story, the movie from Noah Baumbach with Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson that I'd kind of been hearing of as a modern day Kramer versus Kramer. And uh, it sure looks like that. It looks really intriguing and has a really intriguing strategy with two trailers that they released for it. Uh, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, we've spoken about it already when the festival lineups have been announced, but it's 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 steadily inched up toward the very top of, of my most anticipated in this upcoming run of fall festivals. Um, I like Bombback movies. I wasn't super, you know, connected to his last one, the Meyerowitz stories, but I like these two actors despite what some of their, you know, lives outside of acting have uh, included recently. So yeah, I'm really intrigued and I think this is a really effective marketing tool to kind of make you feel like this is some big, you know, epic end of the relationship kind of thing, which maybe it is. Mm -hmm. Joanna, what do you think? Yeah, I think the idea of releasing these two trailers and they've also got these two companion posters that are really cool with their like cutout silhouettes and and a city behind them. Um, I think that's a that's an interesting strategy to like cut above the noise and not just look like oh it's I don't know an episode of Parenthood with Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver or something like that. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, which like mm-hmm. I don't know how successful all of that was, but uh, where they had like a him, her, and them cut um, of the story. So I'll be curious to see. Um, I don't know if you guys already know this, but how much that strategy plays into how the movie itself comes through or if that's just a marketing strategy. I haven't heard anything that suggests that it's quite, I, I want gimmicky is the wrong word, but that it has kind of a hook like that. And my, my understanding is it's like most Noah Baumbach movies, a fairly straightforwardly told uh, story about a relationship. Yeah, and I guess the question therein is, is a straightforwardly made tale about uh, hetero, seemingly not destitute white people living in New York, that doesn't have any stylistic, you know, trickery or whatever, like how much oxygen can that thing get at a time when I think movies are increasingly trying to expand the purview beyond what you might have seen, you know, however, 40 years ago in Kramer versus Kramer. So 
I would say in a way the movie has to be like that much better to kind of break through, um, you know, in, in this very crowded season. But, you know, if anyone can do it, like I, I, I Bombeck, you know, made, I think, one of the definitive movies about divorce in The Squid and the Whale, and that was from the child's perspective. This seems to be more from the parents. And, and so, I, you know, I'll be curious to see. It's clearly a theme that has rattled around in his head for a long time and um, I think, you know, speaks to his personal life to some extent. So uh, I have faith that he will do it. And so does Netflix, which is running it at every festival that, you know, pretty much there is this fall. Yeah, well, let me use this as another opportunity to complain about my favorite movie of last year, Private Life, which was also a Netflix movie, also about Mm -hmm. uh, relatively well-off New Yorkers starring two great actors that Netflix didn't dump exactly, but did not give the lavish treatment that it was uh, putting on Roma at the time and didn't seem to give the same treatment that it's giving to Marriage Story. And I get that like Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver are differently marketable actors than Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti, but I think even if I love Marriage Story, I'm going to probably have a chip on my shoulder about it, unfortunately. Yeah, justice for Tammy Jenkins. Oh yeah, my God. exactly. Um, and then since Mike is not here to give us the sort of like messy podcaster who loves drama uh, take, <laughs> I, <laughs> I will say once again that it, it'll be interesting to see a Noah Baumbach versus Greta Gerwig sort of uh, campaign season. I too am a messy season. podcaster who loves drama. Well, did you see <laughs> that tweet? I think it was the producer Marie Barty or somebody who was like, you know, uh, we we need to the behind the scenes about the Greta Gerwig Noah Baumbach Oscar season. Get on it, Vanity Fair. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, lane. God, our assignment has <laughs> oh, been given and to I, us. I, re- I replied, I was like, I, I'm sure, almost certain we are. <laughs> like, there has I to mean, be something I'll be work. writing fan fiction about it at the yeah. very least, so <laughs> everyone can look forward to that. Excellent. Well, welcome back to the latest installment of our Summer Book Club. Uh, today, we are talking about Joan Didion's The Last Thing He Wanted, which was published in 1996, but is soon to be a movie from Dee Reese, who directed Mudbound most recently, uh, and starring Anne Hathaway, who is uh, she's got a busy couple of movies coming up. It's exciting to see yet another comeback from her. Uh, it's going to be a Netflix movie. We should probably say off the bat, they haven't set a date for this, and it's not at fall festivals, so it's very possible this won't be out this fall, um, but we thought it was interesting enough to talk about about the book and kind of get into it. So uh, you can all be proud that you've planned ahead for when this movie comes out, whether it's this fall or later. Um, I feel like I've talked a lot and I also should say up front, I don't know that I have a great grasp of the plot of this book because I am not real. I'm not especially good at following dense like conspiracy plots, which is really what the whole thing is. And the plot of the last thing he wanted, I don't think is the most important thing, but we should probably start with that just to get a sense of where we are. Um, Joanna, can I make you do it? Absolutely. I was raised on a steady diet of John Grisham novels, so I can do this. It actually wasn't until I got to the very end of the book that I realized it was published in 96. I don't know why I thought it was more recent. Um, I just didn't even look at the pub date. And so when I got to the end and I realized it was published in 96, I was like, this makes a lot more sense. Yeah, because um, it has the base assumption being like, you remember Iron Contra, right? And Well, uh, not just that, but um, that it's so Grishamy. I think, in... in mm. In sort of its core, and then with like a nice frosting of Didion on top of it. But um, basically, there's this character of Elena, who will be played by Anne Hathaway, um, who walks out of her life in Hollywood, where she is like, you know, an upper echelon of society, you know, society woman, wife, uh, gets a job with the Washington Post as a politics reporter, and then decides to walk off the 1984 presidential campaign that she's covering, and goes to visit her ailing father, who will be played by Willem Dafoe, and finds out as she's visiting him that he's sort of, he's had this shady 
dealings with shady characters. He's a fixer and arranger of, of deals and arms, uh, maybe specifically. Um, she finds out that he's entangled in sort of like one last job and she kind of uh, goes on his behalf and winds up down. Well, it starts out that she's in I forget Costa Rica. She, yeah, Costa Rica, right? But then she winds up, I, I believe, by context clues on the Caribbean island of St. Thomas and is sort of held hostage there by some shady characters. And it turns out she's sort of been swept up in this political intrigue, conspiracy, assassination plot that has to do with the Iron Contra scandal. And the last character of note that we should mention is a uh, character called Treat Morrison, who is... I don't know what FBI something like that uh, CIA CIA something. State Department it's really it's unclear <laughs> it's shady uh, who will be played by Ben Affleck and uh, he comes down just uh, sort of on an unrelated issue but gets caught up uh, in all of this and this is told uh, through a, a really interesting frame narrative because it's like a friend of the character of Elena who is also a journalist is trying to piece together what actually happened many years after the fact with an unsealed document uh, by Treat Morrison that was published after his death and stuff like that. So it's set in 1996 about events that happened in 1984. And I had to, um, I was talking to Katie and I was like, I don't know enough about the Iron Contra affair to feel like I'm really like able to follow this perfectly. And uh, Katie already knows this, but <laughs> I Googled, Iron Contra movies and uh, what popped up first was the film American Made, the Doug Lyman film with Tom Cruise uh, that came out a couple of years ago, which I had never seen but meant to. And I just watched that over the weekend just to see if they wanted to do like a basic explainer. And they did a very basic like with cartoons explainer <laughs> of the Iron Contra affair. And I felt like I understood it uh, a bit better. So I think I think that's. Did I miss anything no. major, Richard? Yeah. No, I think that's good. I mean, it, it's about the Iron Contra affair, but it's it's really, I think, more broadly about U.S. kind of adventurism um, in yeah. Caribbean countries, you know. And and jo Didion has written a lot about. She wrote a book called Miami that looked at a lot of a Latino population in that city. Um, she wrote a book called Salvador about her travels in El Salvador. Uh, so it's it's definitely an interest of hers, and and I think that there's a sort of political horror at work in the book, where you know, the, in this particular case uh, in Nicaragua, the, the Reagan administration was arming the Sandinistas, who were this rebel group, kind of um, you know fighting against a communist government, which obviously we didn't want communist governments uh, anywhere near us, so or anywhere further away from us. And I think I think arming the Contras. To fight the Sandinistas. Oh, sorry. Yes, that's, thank you. Um, that's what I learned from the Tom Cruise. Film. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's funny because I, I thought about the Tom Cruise movie when I was when I, which is a, a really underrated movie. Um, yeah. Uh, so basically, he's flying over what's happening on the ground in this book, you know. And there's this whole thing where they, the 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 way that these kind of jingoistic, you know, shadowy. American operatives refer to the Caribbean Sea as a, their lake, you know, so they have this kind of proprietary thing about it. And I think that's kind of what the book is about, about all these lives that kind of happen and disappear in 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 all of this kind of American uh, overreach. And, you know, I, I it is Grishamy and in, in, in sort of the mechanics of the plot, but I, I kept thinking about Graham Greene, um, yeah. the British mystery, yeah. you know, sort of spy novelist who always has this kind of moral crisis at the center. There's a real humanity, um, you know, to go along with the sort of more exciting, flashy, you know, guns and intrigue stuff. Um, and I think that does it. It is, though, 
Katie, in both of our defenses, it is a confusing book narratively. Um, yep. I'm told it's very similar to her book Democracy, her, her the novel she had published previous to this, I think, that's set in Hawaii and Vietnam, kind of, you know, a, basically a love story with that political backdrop. Um, so I, I kind of want to go back and read that now to see if, uh, if the rhythms and the styles are, are similar. Yeah, I wound up liking the rhythms and the styles. I like her writing style. I had read, I had this is the first of her novels that I've read. I'd read uh, mm-hmm. Pure Magical Thinking and some of her essays. Uh, and she has such a, you know, incredible, like much praised writing style. But it definitely like, it loops you back and forth in the story. And especially when you're trying to keep track of a conspiracy plot that I think is explained in the end, but it's kind of left deliberately vague because with, you know, things that are done by shadowy government forces, you never really know the whole story. Um, You just kind of get to the end and you're like, hang on, do I actually understand what happened here? And to an extent, it doesn't matter, but then I also just felt confused. Yeah, it's funny because... Richard and I on, on the Still Watching podcast have talked a lot about the the work of Jean-Marc Vallée in adapting books. And I just like, all I could think of was like, every time uh, a strain just looped back to an earlier part of her life, I was like, oh, I could see how Vallée would just be like, <laughs> immediately cut. And you would get this sort of like, shadowy, vague memory of the Oscar party that she attended or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and what what else, you know, the, the Grisham or the Graham Greene... Like the Grisham is the is the airport novel version of this, right? And then the Graham Greene is the more thoughtful. But then, like laid over all of that is, I think this is the first time I've read Joan Didion since I became I hesitate to call myself a journalist, but a journalist, right? And so all of her meditations on journalism in this I thought were really interesting like she calls journalism history's rough draft as in people covering like the Iron Contra affair when it happened can't have access to like every layer of what actually happened because there's so many forces working to cover up what actually happened so journalism immediate on the ground reporting is history's rough draft like this is our first pass at these events and then what this book is is her second pass or third or whatever at these events with more information a more detailed interview with the ben affleck character all this sort of stuff. And I just thought all of that was interesting. And all this journalism stuff that's in there, like there's a sequence where uh, her main character, Elena, who's a journalist, uh, is reading newspaper headlines and like clucking her tongue at how like inaccurate she thinks they are. (laughs) And so she starts rewriting them. And I'm like, I do this all the time where I'm like, no, that's not right. You should have written these five other things um, instead. So uh, there's just like a lot of journalism stuff that I wonder you know we we've been wondering what the shape of this movie will be like how much of this extra stuff will it have in it or how much will it just be like a straightforward thriller and strip out some of this extra extraneous um didion-ness from it it's not like there's a ton of plot like i think you could keep a lot of the kind of detail stuff because when when you get to just like the what happens it's pretty straightforward especially since you've got the character elena kind of cooling her heels for a long time on this caribbean island and i'm encouraged by the imdb list which is kind of all we can go on there's a lot of people credited as like reagan supporter reagan entourage campaign lackey um so there's at least some of that being in the midst of a campaign stuff that seems like will be intact yeah, I hope so. I mean, because what I thought was really fascinating about this book was that 
you know, there is this this spy story at the center of it to some extent. But like, I, I don't think I've ever read a spy novel, if you want to call it that, that also has all these sort of other societal kind of cultural concerns. I mean, Joan Didion concerns about, you know, Oscar parties in L.A. and, you know, which which is the best flight to take from JFK or LaGuardia right. to L.A. She's, I love how obsessed <laughs> she is with airlines and, and flights and all that, you know. And these are pretty high-minded. I mean, they're sort of they're bougie concerns, you know. Yeah, um, right. and, and but she talks about them with a wry humor and and and, and, and an avid and genuine interest, and to have that overlaid over this geopolitical kind of horror story in a way, I thought was like I don't know if it's exactly appropriate to the lives actually lost, but um, I don't know. I, I was I was watching an interview with her, which unfortunately was Charlie Rose, which you know that's the problem. Is <laughs> there are so many? He had so many everything great in the past. Yeah, um, <laughs> but she was talking about how at the time, you know, she, in in like you know 1984, in the midst of the Reagan administration. I mean, you think about what was happening domestically. Well, well, actually, really all over the world uh, at that time, and you know, it was a lot going on. And she said that the kind of pervading mood in Washington was that no one really believed anything. No one believed facts or truth or you know there, there was always a suspicion about um, what was really going on um, and I thought that was interesting to see that you know played out in the book but also to th- think about how that relates to right now yeah that doesn't sound familiar Richard I'm not I don't know anyone who believes that <laughs> Yeah, um, it reminded me for some reason that the essay, because I've, I've mostly read Didion essays, and the essay that it reminded me of a lot for some reason was uh, the one called On the Mall from the White Album, which is just about like like how malls came to be. And it, I think it's that specificity of a fascination with a thing that like maybe people don't think about. It, I was reminded of it multiple times in this book, this like exactly that part where they're talking about the flights or um, I don't know, Washington, D.C culture or um, all this sort of stuff. So I just just thought it was really interesting. And like this idea of which maybe felt a little fresher in 96 of this woman who walks away. She has a grown daughter and walks away from an extremely comfortable life uh, because as she says, uh, like, I just can't fake this anymore. You know what I mean? Like that, that she, she went from a life with a father who uh, was extremely an, an extremely unreliable provider. You know, they had a really, you know, unpredictable and probably tough upbringing with this arms dealer who was maybe involved in the Kennedy assassination. Um, oh, right. Yeah. yeah. That. You mean that thing in Dallas? The thing in <laughs> yeah. Dallas. The thing in Dallas. <laughs> yeah. um, like a, a really weird, like, a, you know, a rocky upbringing with him necessarily goes to the comfort of this extremely rich man in LA, like slips into that life of these like Sunday tennis luncheons with celebrities and stuff like that. And then is like, no, I don't want that. And walks away as like a, 40 something woman with a grown uh, adult child or, or like a teen child, which I thought uh, was and a teen daughter who like resents her for leave for leaving that comfort. And I, I thought that was interesting. And, and one thing I texted Katie as I was reading is I was like, Anne Hathaway is way too young yeah. for, for this role. And so like, I'm guessing they're going to get rid of the daughter Or age her down a lot, which also makes it complicated because the idea of a woman walking away from a younger child is really kind. Like I don't, she's not really supposed to be a heroine. Like she makes a lot of kind of puzzling and bad choices in this. But uh, that'll be an interesting thing to try to balance. She smokes cigarettes, Katie. I mean, um, (laughs) but you know, I think the other thing about it is. So also in that interview, Didion said that the, the narrator character in this is supposed to be Joan Didion, um, yeah, which right. I think is funny. Um, but but of course, while reading the book, I'm picturing Elena in my mind as Joan Didion, you know, and and Mm -hmm. this willowy sort of, you know, 
the, the wrong gust of wind will blow her off the island, you know, kind of thing. Like, like, and I just, I think Hathaway has a very different energy than than that. So it will be interesting to see how that's played out. But I, I do think that, like, for what it's worth, a sort of maybe weary, little bit sozzled, you know government guy i think affleck's good casting for that oh perfect yeah, really perfect. good perfect yeah i love it i don't know where we've all been on the like rooting for the affleck comeback train but uh i'd be really excited because he's he's such good casting for so many kinds of roles and i this feels like a good opportunity for him like gone girl style well i think yeah i think i'm rooting for ben affleck to just have like the correct career going forward which is sort of exactly <laughs> what Richard described versus like playing Batman you know so uh, a comeback to the the right roles yeah. uh, if that makes sense he just but keeps yeah, self-sabotaging is the thing <laughs> you know yeah. it's just like he like yeah. gets the good thing and it happens and it's working and then he's like but I really want to do Batman you know <laughs> yeah. like Ben no um <laughs> I'll also yeah. be curious to see, do we know who's playing? So there's this other character, this shifty um, aide to a senator, who I believe the senator is supposed to be Jesse Helms. I was reading that. Um, oh. Uh, so this this, guy, <laughs> this character, Mark, who's this 27-year-old shifty, he's kind of the guy who, we learn, pushes this all in motion, um, yeah. this, this assassination plot. So that could be a good role for somebody. I don't know. Yeah, the, on IMDb, it's Ben Chase who oh. has who was on a um, he was on one episode of The Mysteries of Laura, which I know you uh, you produce, Richard. So you probably yeah, work. Of course, him. yeah. Ben's a great, um, great friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's had a bunch of small roles. So this, you know, I think you're right that that character, especially as you were saying, Richard, in like this era of DC and not trusting anybody, like he's such a great embodiment of all of the like shifty, you know, ruthless go getters who seem to be running that town right now. So that would be, that'll be exciting for him. Yeah, and then the question is, like, who... Toby Jones and Rosie Perez are also in the cast list, and we don't know who they're playing. Toby Jones is, like, any number of... Like, he could be the, so many people, yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking, like, maybe he's the the owner of the Surfrider Hotel where she, like, goes yeah. to work or something like that, like that guy. Or maybe. he could be the um, uh, Alex Brokaw, like, who's the guy the assassination plot against him. Oh, that guy's probably younger. Yeah, but Rosie Perez, I was sort of hoping that she would be, like the Joan Didion figure, but like, I don't know, maybe not like maybe we were supposed to expect that since Rosie Perez is a Latina, like she's somehow involved in that plot. But I think it would be cool if like, I don't know if they're going to have the narrator figure, but right. I think it would be cool if they did. Like I, I really liked, for some reason I really liked the sections that's her interviewing Tree Morrison after mm-hmm. the fact that stuff I thought was really good. And her, her being like, here are the nuggets <laughs> of goods like i think we can all relate to that where you have like hours and hours of tape and there's like three actual nuggets in there she's like (laughs) here they are (laughs) this is it this is all i got so um i don't know it's uh yeah it it has real potential and like it helped me realize how much i miss the like adult thriller Mm -hmm. um not that this necessarily needs to be that much of an adult thriller but i i was i was thinking like we had this run of great John Grisham adaptation, like the thriller in the early nineties was like such a thing. Pelican brief. I'm a big fan, the firm, a big fan, the client, and then maybe like diminishing returns after that. But, um, 
But I was like, I welcome this. I welcome time this. Time to Kill even, was pretty you know? good. Yeah, yeah. Time to Kill. I mean, those, yeah, you know? there, those were four like really good adaptations. Um, yeah, you know, so, all in a row, and, and, all at once. And yeah. Mudbound was also an adaptation of a big, dense novel. I mean, not that this is big or dense, but or I mean, it's dense, but it's but you know what I mean. Like 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 she can handle that. I think that there's I think the story here it luckily is a little more condensed than 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 in Mudbound, which had this historic mm-hmm. sprawl to it. And I think the movie for me, the movie got a little lost in trying to tell every possible story from the book. So I, I welcome a little streamlining here if need be. My guess about Toby Jones is that he'll be Bob Weir. Oh, yeah, the, oh. the fixer guy um, who like winds up being at the center of everything. But I also will be curious to see who plays the, the gay um, hotel owner. Was introduced to that character. I was like, oh, that's fun. There's a gay character in it. And I flipped another page. And I was like, oh, this is kind of offensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not great. It's just so crazy. Was- like 23 years ago, how differently you could write a gay, you know, a gay well, character. Well, this, this came out like the same year as The Birdcage, right? Right, yeah. Oh, well, that was another one where when I was like, oh, it's 1996. And the book, I was like, okay. I was like, Joan Didion wrote this just a couple of years. I don't know why I thought it was like so recent. I have no idea. Um, what do you anyway. guys expect from the romance angle that comes into this? Because one of the really interesting choices about the book that I guess I like, I'm not really sure where I landed on it, is that Elena and Treat Morrison eventually meet and have this romance. It basically happens entirely off screen in the book like you don't see most of it and then it kind of ends with the two of them as a couple um i imagine a movie will show more of that and i think affleck and hathaway could be really interesting together or, or do you think it would stay more true to the book and kind of leave that unseen i don't think you can do it i i, I think you'd have to show more of it i mean i think I, you know i was reading the book on my phone and so i could see like what my progress was you know and i i was like wait they're just meeting now but isn't, this, <laughs> no. isn't there gonna be this whole thing and then it's like oh no the romance is only kind of alluded to uh, yeah. in this kind of like afterthought of a way, which I, I you know, was a stylistic choice, certainly. Um, but I can't imagine that in a movie they, they'll, they'll have to do more. I mean, these are two huge movie stars. Yeah. For me, it was the equivalent of, like, I don't know if you guys ever do this, but I think all the time of the sequence in Out of Sight when you've got George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez talking and then it, like, cuts to them sort of looking at undressing, like, with each other mm-hmm. in the hotel room, like, back and me, forth. Me, like, the greatest seduction scene of yeah. all time. <laughs> of all time. So how often do you think about that? I think about it all the time. <laughs> but I was thinking about that, like, because we only see their, like, conversations, like, in the hotel bar. And I'm like, but later in the room, Ben Affleck and... Anne Hathaway, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's funny you mentioned Out of Sight because I think there is an Elmore Leonard quality to this as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's the Miami stuff in particular, obviously. Yeah. I'm, And I think Willem Dafoe could really chew this part mm-hmm. up uh, in a great way. Yeah, so. it'll probably be pretty, because like his character is important, but not really central to most of the story. So I imagine he'll kind of show up early and then uh, make his mark and go, which is a great Willem Dafoe role. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as I said at the beginning, we're not sure if this movie will be out this year um, because uh, it hasn't been announced at any festivals. But it, we definitely see some like awardsy potential for this whenever it emerges, right? Yeah, I mean, if she, I mean, she's a talented director. If she can nail that that hazy mood, you know, that yeah. that Didion so captures so well, because and because there is that. You know, I was thinking about the book Ladder of Years, the Ann Tyler novel, where a woman just is on the beach with her family and then just gets up and walks away and starts a whole new life. Like, there is something really deep and profound about that. And and I think to get a certain audience in with this, this the spy aspect of it, but then have this kind of rumination on womanhood for at least this 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 woman's life in, in this period of time. Like, I, I think I think for sure there's, there's an interesting kind of um, both popular appeal, but also, yeah, an artistic one. 
And there's something about the fact that it's going to be on Netflix. I mean, it, they will release it in theaters, you assume, like the same way they did with Mudbound. And Mudbound had this great award success. But we talk about how they don't make these kinds of legal thrillers anymore, but they're all over television. So something that you can really see being accessible to people at home, uh, even if it's like if it was being released by Warner Brothers or something, it might be received really differently. I think it just depends how much they decide to directorially or, or with the cinematography or whatever, decide to elevate it. Because this could be like... The Lincoln Lawyer, which is not slander because I love the movie. Lincoln, the Lincoln Lawyer, Lawyer. Rules. Yeah, that movie's great, but you would never be like, award season potential. You know what I mean? It sure. could be that, or it could be like, you know, um, I don't know what, The Interpreter or something. I don't know, something else. Something else like slightly more prestige um, but that still has that thriller vibe to it. So. Um, the Interpreter has one of the best final two lines of a movie of the 2000s, so there you go. Hey, what me, are they? What, what are they? So she's, a, she's an interpreter. And she says something in the, you know, made up, um, you know, sub-Saharan language that that she interprets. And and he says, uh, like, goodbye or something. And she goes, close enough. I just love it. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Sidney Pollack, who also directed the firm. Yes. Sidney Pollack. Like, that's I was, like, really missing... When I was reading this book, I was really missing Sidney Pollock as well as like the the era of like the Pollock thriller, the Grisham thriller. That's something I miss. So bring it back. Yeah, we're counting on you, Reese. So that does it for this week's book club. We'll be back next week with our final book club installment where we'll be talking about Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch. I hope you have started reading already since it is a long one, but uh, it'll be out as a movie in September. So it'll be a great chance to talk about the book and then see the movie itself a few weeks later. So join us then. Uh, so, Mike, we're going to listen to your interview that you did with Josh Chapin, who is the CEO of AMC Networks. He's a guy who's kind of got his hands in a in way more television than you would think from the name AMC. So uh, what did you guys get into? Well, you know, we don't have executives on that often, but I think it's really fun. And especially for our audience that's so sophisticated and passionate about television, about film, we can actually kind of get into inside baseball and to keep with the baseball metaphor you know, I think about it like the way that sports fans, they don't they don't just care about what's happening on the field. They care about what's happening in the front office and the trades and the, you know, the salary caps and all that stuff. Um, and so Josh is making calls at a very high level for some of the really best television series, you know, you can think of from Mad Men to Breaking Bad to Killing Eve, um, The Walking Dead and beyond. And so they have a bunch of Emmy nominations in, in his kind of large collection of, of cable networks that he oversees. Uh, So we talked about all that, all the brilliant people he works with, talked about kind of how he works and also um, what he's excited about and and what things, you know, really get him going after 15 years of of doing this. And also obviously how it's all changed and how a smaller company can survive in the streaming era. Well, I hope this is the beginning of an era of uh, studio heads and executives clamoring to be on here. And eventually we've got like Bob Iger making announcements on Little Gold Men. So uh, all of the the titans of industry, please, our studio is open to you. Yeah, I think Ted Sarandos and Bob Iger need to keep up. And uh, oh, What if they come on together and this is where we get yeah, to like rumble well, in the jungle? Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's right. a standing offer for those of you who work <laughs> at, at Netflix and Disney Plus who may or may not be listening to this by um, uh, voluntarily or otherwise. <laughs> well, in the meantime, let's listen to your interview with Josh Sapin. Well, I'm very pleased to be here with Josh Sapin, the uh, CEO of AMC Networks since 1995. And at this point, 
I'm going to try to say what's in your empire, and you can correct me if I forget anything or leave anything out. AMC, BBC America, IFC, Sundance TV, WeTV, IFC Films, Sundance Now, Shudder, Acorn TV, Urban Movie Channel, AMC Studios, AMC Networks International. I'm running out of breath here. Is that, I, is that I th- everything? I think you got it. Okay. We're here to talk about, among other things, your Emmy contenders this year. Yes. And there are four ones that I think are, you know, worth worth getting into a little bit. State of the Union, this really great short series that uh, Nick Hornby wrote and created. Is that right? Yes. Uh, with Chris O'Dowd and Rosamund Pike. Directed, is, yeah, directed by Stephen Frears. Directed by Stephen Frears. BBC America's Killing Eve. We all know and love Killing Eve. Nine Emmy nominations. AMC's Better Call Saul, nine Emmy nominations, and IFC Channel's Documentary Now with four Emmy nominations. Yes. So, nice work. Congratulations. Yeah, well, <laughs> to all the people who did the work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, so what is your, actually, for those people who are like, what does a CEO do? Like, what is your participation in a given series? Not too much, actually. Okay. Uh, you know, in truth, the, the people who are, uh, first of all, the people who are doing the work are really doing the work, of course. Uh-huh. Right. So Phoebe Wallerbridge is creating something, or Nick Hornby is writing State right. of the Union, and, 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 and Stephen Frears is directing it, just to use an example. And we have development executives who work on that, cultivate it, get the ideas, bring them forward, and work with the creative people. Right. Uh, so my involvement is uh, I read new scripts, when we're going to initiate something and yeah. and happily get a chance to pay attention and participate in saying yes. But after that, it's other people I work with. It is, so, it's so in the, their good hands. So the development executives come to you and say, all right, we've got this great group of people. We have this great idea. We think it's going to work. Can we get a green light? And you're given the green light? Is that- yeah, there's a group of us ultimately uh-huh. who say yes. Um, uh-huh. And it's because we're a smaller company. Right. Um, there's a group of us who... Uh, collectively say yes, and I'm one of that group. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you have how much power do you have? Could you just you know could you just overrule everybody and be like I'm not doing that? I think in like in much of life, yeah, uh, no's are often very loud. Yeah. Uh, yeses are sort of required, and I mean that that tends to be the case. I think, and particularly if one is selective as we are, and and careful, and not green lighting abundantly. Right. As some institutions are today, because they're in different states of development, we're fairly careful, which means that that I think we sort of have to have close to a universal yes right. in order to proceed. So you could actually probably stop something by being the only person saying no, but maybe harder to be the only person saying yes. I think that's accurate. Okay. I think that's that very makes well sense. said. Yeah. yeah. I think that's that, very well said. I think said. I experienced that in my in my job as well. That, yeah. You're trying to build some consensus around stuff. Yeah. I think, and, and I think it's, it's uh, I don't think it's about personality and I don't think it's serendipitous. I think it's actually sensible, which is if you're, sure. if you're doing something and you're doing a limited amount of things and they matter a lot, then you want to be careful. Right, and I think it doesn't just come with. Hopefully, with a chair, it really comes with uh, respect for people's point of view. Right. I thought one of the great things I saw is that when you were with Bravo, you you created Inside the Actor Studio and Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, and and is that right? Is that correct? I'm yeah, fact no, checking again, again, things I read on the no, internet. No, you can. They, they're on the internet, indeed. And created again is a flattering word. I, I'll I'll I'll, I'll greenlit. I'll take credit for being there when we made when we, when those things went forward. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And and Inside the Actor Studio came across my desk, if if my memory serves me, which is always a question, as an unsolicited program idea yeah. from the then New School 
for social research yeah. uh, from their theater department. That's cool. Yeah. That's great. So you've been doing this for 14 years in this job, yeah. right? You started yeah. since 1995. So obviously a lot has changed. Yes. And we've met before. I know that you're very smart, and I'm sure you anticipated some of those changes. But what are some of the changes? What's the biggest change that you couldn't have anticipated 19 years ago about how drastically the TV landscape has changed? Yeah. You know, we had... It, 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 if, I'm going to answer the question very specifically. Yeah. Because what we did think is that all of the changes in technology would allow for a few very obvious things to be said today, including a proliferation of choice, as mm -hmm. it's often called, a, a sort of fragmentation, and also viewing when you want it on demand. In, yeah. On demand on the internet, on demand on cable. But the degree to which it influenced stories, although we did think it early, and yeah. thought that people would have more attention, more endurance. It would be more cinema-like, meaning you're sitting around and able to pay attention as opposed to following something only as scheduled. Right. And therefore, you can like and love more nuanced material. I think it went further and deeper, at least than I anticipated, which is what I think is behind the flowering of the best television ever on television. Yeah. Uh, because people can pay attention very carefully. And they do, and they right. love to do it. Right. That's interesting. So, well, that's a positive view of the change. I think it's, a I think it's occurred. I think that it, it, there's almost no disagreement that whatever word one wants to use or phrase about second golden age or television is as important or more than film or television is like literature, I think those things are all directionally quite true. So, in my opinion, estimation, in my personal opinion, maybe, or view, Breaking Bad, AMC's Breaking Bad, is the best show ever. I think that's the best show ever. So how do these changes make Breaking Bad possible in a way where it wouldn't have been possible maybe 15 years earlier? Yeah. So I think um, there's two things. Well, I think there's a few things. One is that we put our faith, we love the script. We yeah. loved, loved, loved the script and yeah. the pilot. Yeah. Uh, just absolutely fell in love. Yeah. And when I saw it and we saw it, I thought, I've never seen anything like this on TV. Mm -hmm. And it, bad words to describe it, it felt like the best of an independent film gone to television. If you look at the pilot, yeah. it looks like yes. that. And yeah. uh, I don't think... It's an amazing pilot. It has so much oh. of the story in it, too. Oh. And he kind of had to, like, take oh. a few steps back. Yeah. It's I so mean, it's, good. It's not, quote, all in the pilot, but the pilot is... It's it's completely has all the symptoms of greatness, yes. to my mind, all yes. of the symptoms of greatness. Yes. So I think that a few things maybe are reflective. Uh, and thank you for being a fan. That's very kind <laughs> of you. And thank you Thanks for, for greenlighting it. And thank you for being singular about it being great. There's, of course, many other great TV shows yes. that preceded it and they would come to mind like The Wire and, and sure. Sopranos, etc. And Mad Men. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a few things, it's reflective of a few things. One is that the guy who wrote it is, uh, I, I can only use hackneyed words, pure genius, mm -hmm. uh, because I think <laughs> it's pure genius. I think yeah. it just runs in Vince Gilligan's blood. Mm -hmm. I think that's just runs in his blood and what he does and what he brings to life. Now with Peter Gould is irresistible and entirely original yeah. and as close to sort of if there can be perfect without intention and premeditation for perfect, it's sort of perfect. So I think authority to creative force is thing one. I think thing two is that people could watch it in different ways. 
right. uh, when it premiered, which I think it gave it greater opportunity to be talked about. And then the third thing, which is really very interesting, I think, is the ability to find and discover TV shows that are, quote, not on or not in active production. Yes. Keeps it alive in life, and it keeps yeah. it alive in culture. So to say it idiomatically, younger people discover it, and they weren't of age yeah. when Breaking Bad was on, and they watch it and they think, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen because it's easily accessible. Well, and I just had that experience with, with um, Better Call Saul, actually, where when it first aired, it was like almost too soon after Breaking Bad, and if you're going to have that kind of view that I have, that it's the greatest thing ever, then the fact that, it, that Better Call Saul was different, I was like, I'm not ready to go back to this world in a different way. But more recently, I was able to and, you know, totally slam through the entire thing and am desperately awaiting the next season. So I, I see what you mean. I, I can I, see I that. I think, it, you know, it, it's interesting. I was thinking about Emmy Awards and I was thinking about yeah. this, this meaning Reservoir of Great Material and its accessibility. And I was happily on vacation last yeah. week and I was sitting in a very happy place with uh, <laughs> water and sand. Uh -huh. And I had uh, several books beside me and it just so happened that they weren't all recently written at all and they and I like good, sort of good books and so it was Flannery O'Connor right. and it yeah, was sure. uh, Truman Capote's first that he wrote at age 19 and uh, Appointment in Samara and and it was a bunch of stuff from long ago and there it was yeah. uh, and it was with me yeah and that's because it's readily available in right. this case, it was actually print material. Right. I, I'm happy to say that it wasn't yeah. electronic because it was outdoors. But television now has the same genetics. Right. And then, so then those libraries become very important yeah. as a competitive tool, right? Weapon. They do indeed. They yeah. do indeed. Because one of my questions for you is, we talked about how big your empire is. On the other hand, if you're in comparison to something like Netflix, like you said, you're being very selective. You're not, you're not green lighting whatever it is, hun multiple hundreds of yes. shows yeah. per year. And then you've got Disney Plus coming sure. on. You've got the, you know, we, we talk a lot uh, here at Vanity Fair about the streaming wars. Sure. So how do you compete? How does AMC compete in the streaming wars? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I think, you know, what's, what I think is emerging is that um, there are streaming services that are intended for, if you'll permit me this term, the whole house, something for every member of the family. Right. And I think that by my observation, these services, which have different places in the pricing world, because Amazon Prime comes with right. uh, shipping and Netflix, one has to pay for separately. And then in the ecosystems of other tech companies, they'll either be incremental or not incremental if you buy something else. But there is one category I would say is, uh, it's intended for everybody in your household. Right. Uh, and another category, I think, and we, you can put a bunch of services in there. And a second category is sort of premium material for grownups. And then I think there's a third category that's yet more specialized. And I think those will all emerge and change and develop, and it may not be like that forever, but I think it's moving in that direction today. Yeah. So we have millions of people who subscribe. You mentioned Acorn TV mm -hmm. uh, and its British material, specifically uh, dramas and the numbers in that range. I mean, it's, it's in the million range. And so it's a specialty service but people have become habituated and familiar now with pressing a button to connect. And so there's a business model that works 
for that. Right. Right. So you're not going to try and go head on with one of these behemoths, but more rather appeal to a select group of people who are passionate about this. Exactly right. And there will be degrees of it. And I don't know whether uh, it's it's probably a terribly imperfect analogy speaking Mm -hmm. to you, but the magazine world and the history of the magazine world is certainly the history of the magazine world is an easy analog for uh, general interest magazines and, and degrees of increasingly specialized magazines that don't have bright lines between the categories. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So let's talk about State of the Union, because I think it, it plays very, it's interesting the way that it connects with what you're saying about how people watch, right? And um, it's 10-minute episodes. It's Rosamund Pike and Chris O'Dowd. At the very beginning, their marriage is, has hit an impasse, and the whole question is kind of like, what's, what's going to happen? Are they going to make yeah. it through or not? At first, were you like, oh, great, let's try a 10-minute series? Were you like, this is crazy, no one watches 10-minute series? Like, what was the, what was the yeah. conversation at uh, AMC? You know, I think that we have always loved different forms and formats, and it's great to be on the front end of forms and formats yeah. that, that emerge and become accessible because of changes in tech, mostly. And so there's much talk about short form, and there's an awful lot of logic, of course, yeah. uh, to why short form would be there. So I think the format was intriguing. And by the way, there's, we've tried a Many, many, many other formats that may yeah, not have sure. may not have yielded quite the fruit. Right, and I should mention it's on Sundance now, right? Yes, so, exactly. So Streaming most, on Sundance now. So most people going to Sundance now are are looking for kind of cool, interesting indie films. Yeah, exactly and, right. But Thank here you they that. are now. They're saying they're seeing. Oh, this is cool. I can snack, as it were. Sorry, yeah. I want to kill myself. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> I can have a shorter experience. I don't yeah. have to watch like a two-hour kind of heavy thing. You know, even though I obviously like that enough to have a Sundance Now package. Yep. And Chris O'Dowd is cool, and Rosamund Pike's cool, and Nick yeah. Hornby's cool, and Stephen Frears is cool, right? So th- th- that's how it functions. And so did people really watch it? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. People really watch it, and, and, and people love it, and, and I think it's going to live – I think it'll actually go down in history. I do. As one of the first short – I rhetorically asked the question, what are your favorite five short-form series of all time to people? And don't get very good answers. They pretty much come up right. blank. Yeah. Uh, they struggle to answer. Yes. And so – I think there's enormous promise in it that's not yet fully realized. Yeah. Uh, and it may be one of the first, actually, that becomes, yes, I have a favorite as yes. time goes on. Yeah. And by the way, but at the core of it, it's worth saying the format is different in that it's short. What's beneath that, of course, is incredible writing. Yeah. And, yeah. and seamless beautiful direction that you don't notice you don't right. know that it's yeah. being directed in a certain way i think yes. you know stephen sure. is directing it it looks like they're just sitting there my dinner with andre mm-hmm. and um and and brilliant acting mm-hmm. and so i think it's actually it's incredibly as different than documentary now which is very in the best way self-conscious right so i'm referring to our comedy IFC series. Yeah, um, so State of the Union is, is nominated for three Emmys. Uh, Rosamund Pike and Chris O'Dowd are both nominated, and plus it's nominated for Outstanding Short Form Comedy or Drama Series. And then Documentary Now, four 
four Emmy nods for variety sketch, directing, writing for John Mulaney and Seth Meyers, two up, up and comers that I have never heard of, <laughs> right. uh, and for music and lyrics. And I, I wanted to read this quote uh, from a, a writer named Dan Schindel on Hyperallergenic. He said, I am simultaneously grateful for the existence of Documentary Now and baffled that it continues to exist. <laughs> a TV show dedicated to parodying a different documentary with each episode seems too niche to be successful, even in the age of a show for every possible niche. And by the way, too niche to be successful is going to be the new tagline for Little Gold Men. <laughs> if I have anything to do with it. So how does this exist? It's amazing. It's crazy. Like, it actually is. You know, it's just, it's crazy. It's, yeah. I don't, it, it exists because we do take his principle. And I must say, the first time I watched The Artist is, Waiting for the Artist, the Maria yes. Bromwich show. I don't know if you've seen it. Yes, yes, yeah, with, yeah. with Kate Blanchett, right? Yeah, that's, with Kate yes. Blanchett. And that's it, the nominated, one of the ones specifically yeah, nominated. Yeah, forgive me if I'm, I know people may be listening and I'm using inside baseball terms. That's but, okay. We have an inside baseball audience, which okay, is what's the, the joy of this Okay, thing. good. Anyway, it's, it's, if anyone hasn't seen it, I would... For all, with all that small recommendation, yeah. and how can it exist? <laughs> I would heartily recommend it, and also um, the gag on Stephen Sondheim's 1973 making of the musical, yeah. uh, which yeah. is just too funny. And John Mulaney plays a, a, a hilarious Stephen Sondheim. It's just uh, incredibly memorable. The reason it exists is because we're talking about it. Yeah, and there is a not insubstantial number of people who find their way to it and think that there's rare brilliance in it. Well, and it seems to me there's some kind of line to be drawn between inside the actor studio and this, which that that you and the people you surround yourself yeah. with, like, really do believe in culture as a force. You're not you're not dismissive of that. Uh, uh, you know, just because something is sort of considered high culture, you're not dismissive of it and thinking, well, that'll never work on TV. You're willing to try that stuff and, and have had good results. It's always been in my head, I will admit, that, you know, there have been people who've brought, quote, high culture mm -hmm. to greater audiences. And, you know, not not to go too long on... Joe Papp and what he did with Shakespeare and yeah. uh, and free Shakespeare in the park, but it yeah. always was in my head that it was a quite a remarkable achievement to have people in New York City lined up yes. to see Shakespeare. You know, yes. it's not um, Queen; uh, it's Shakespeare <laughs> in the park, and they're lined and lined and lined up. So, you know, if something's really good and it's presented in a way that is accessible. Yes. And it doesn't smell like broccoli, and you don't package it like broccoli, right. and you don't freeze it like frozen broccoli, yeah. then it can be really appealing, and people can easily access and shouldn't be scared of good stuff. Yeah. You know, I don't, you know Dostoevsky reads like potboilers if you're not scared of it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. not being scared of that stuff is a really worthy undertaking. And we've had our best, frankly, fortune uh, going with people who are creatively spectacular you know we made right. boyhood with richard linkletter it took only 12 years and uh this is my i wanted to get to this let's talk about boyhood well, it's just, one of it's, my favorite movies of all time yeah well, but, but it's, yeah it's another one like how the hell does this exist right well mm -hmm. it exists because it was ultimately uh it was richard linkletter and he had a, a wild idea and it pushed the edges for us mm -hmm. and for me the endurance of 12 goddamn years. Mm -hmm. Excuse that language. So what was it like every year you, they'd come to you and say, we need another, you know, 
few dollars to keep well, this thing we, going? Well, we knew it. We called it the 12-year project. The intention, it didn't go right. late. It was on time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was on schedule 12 years later. I will admit that when we would sit in budget meetings, which was when I visited it each time, I would think, oh, right, we're still doing that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, and if it was a good year, it seemed sensible. If it was a bad year, I actually would think... We're still doing that? Right. right. Uh, uh, but it all worked out. Uh-huh. Well, you'll see Patricia Arquette at the Emmys this <laughs> yes, year. Yes, indeed. I right, think. yeah. She's actually, she is spectacular in Escape from... She really yeah. is. And we had Ben Stiller here recently yeah. to talk about that. God, that thing just, is good, it's isn't it? It's just incredibly good. It's yeah, just that, series. it is that good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. that good. And then Killing Eve. So here, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, it's like she went from someone that I hadn't heard of to someone that you hear about constantly because she's just such a such a force of nature. And so this is for the second season. You guys have, as we said, nine Emmy nominations. Sandra Oh, Jodie Comer, Fiona Shaw, and on and on and on. How does this process work for finding new showrunners? You have a different female showrunner for each season. Yeah. How did that come about, and how do you guys select the, the person? You know, that is that is in really in the hands of our development people. Yeah. And, of course, it's careful business uh, yeah. about who should run what. And the transition in Killing Eve worked out enormously well, I think. I think, yeah. I think season two is great. And it's it's dicey business. I mean, of course, it's the it's the gig. It's the important job, yeah. among others. But it's yeah. a very, very, very important well, the showrunner job. Yeah, the showrunner yeah, job. I mean, it all hinges yeah. on that. Yeah, yeah, I just, I mean, so I don't mean to take the light away from Killing Eve because I think it's it's what it is. It's just in every way irresistible. Yeah, and it's sort of pitch perfect. And Fiona Shaw, and Jodie Comer, and Sandra Oh. One can't say enough. Well, did you ever imagine when when it was premiering that it was going to be this kind of phenomenon? I I, I didn't think it would be this kind of phenomenon. Yeah. I will yeah. confess, mm-hmm. I didn't think it would be this kind of phenomenon. I thought it was a great story, and yeah. one goes with great stories. Uh, and I know this is a uh, about Emmys, but I didn't think that The Walking Dead would become the f- phenomenon that it. Became, yeah. but, but a nod to another person because Scott Gimple is a person who oversees now the Walking Dead universe and Angela Kang is the showrunner and they are the people who make it all, they really do make it all happen. I mean, they just well, do. And so Walking Dead, you guys just had this kind of fabulous moment at Comic-Con uh, revealing that this movie is going to be released in theaters with Universal. Yes. And and you had you said recently to investors that the Walking Dead franchise is quote in the early stages of life and quote has many opportunities for growth. So can you tell us a little bit about how you see the next 10 years? What what do you envision as the future of Walking Dead? Yeah, you know, I I can't paint a vivid picture of it. Sure. I can only say that I think that it, and I really do think this. You know, I recently visited uh, an installation which was for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. Yeah. And then happened to watch in the last week the Black Mirror episode. I don't know if you've seen it. That uh, is derived from Star Trek. Oh, no, I have. Okay, so, good. I'll have way, to check it's, it's, it out. It's on Netflix, so, so you should, but I would refer yes. you to it. It's, As is all of Star Trek on Netflix right now. I've actually have started going down okay, that hole recently. So watch, uh, this episode is spectacular. So it's pure brilliance. Yeah. And, yeah. and Charlie Brooker is another person in the world of pure brilliance. Yeah. Just pure uh, genius. But in any case, I, I think that there's stories and characters that are 
eternal is a fancy word. They're just, they resonate with people mm-hmm. and people want to stay in their world and they're reflective of all of life and all that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, they're Lord of the Flies-ish. And mm-hmm. I think The Walking Dead has all those characteristics if you treat it properly. And well, if right, you're extraordinary I was going to say, how do you, how, so what are the pitfalls? Clearly overexposure, you know, doing bad, low quality stuff. Those yeah, are oh yeah, I mean, if you do low quality, it's over. I, I actually think it, it's going to sound perhaps rote to say uh, story and character and true creative, but I do think that those people have kept that story truly alive and really resonant and the people who are there I care about one cares about when one watches it and they're surprising and they're fresh and it's what happens it's what happens when you live your life yeah. uh, you know you're not bored 10 years later in your life yeah. you care about whatever's happening your parents may have aged your kids may have gotten older you may have changed partners you're not indifferent to your life right. you know when you're a decade older and so people who can bring that to source material that has enough flexibility. Yeah. I mean, I think it has to have enough. And what I was trying to say in that comment is that I thought it had enough flexibility and resonance sure. that it could inhabit a lot of what happens in the world. Well, and then it belongs... I mean, there was a lot of conversation about Game of Thrones when the series ended saying, okay, actually, let's let's like be smart about this. This is just the beginning of Game of Thrones at some level, right? They're, they're doing all these spinoffs. It will be with us it's too big to not be with us yeah. for for many years to come, like Star Trek, like Star Wars, you know, and beyond. So it, it was interesting to read those comments because I thought, oh right, yeah, The Walking Dead can be in that can be in that category, can be one of those franchises that that goes on and on. Do you ever wake up in the morning and just think, Jesus Christ, I got to find another Walking Dead, or like, <laughs> what's my Game of Thrones? Uh, every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Happily, not every morning. <laughs> uh, you know, the, 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 I think the urge to uh, be expedient, though, is worth resisting at every level, at least as, right. as an executive, because I think expedience, everybody smells uh, fake, everybody smells a phony, everybody smells instantly uh, less than highly respectable creative. I really mean it. Sure. Everybody smells it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like a person who is a poser and right. you don't like them you know nobody well, likes and you it. don't all you can do is plant seeds right you don't actually know which ones are gonna you don't turn you just, into you just, that kind of thing you don't and you really have to go with it uh but you just you have to uh to say it it sounds rote to say it but one better respect the creative people who are really doing the stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So we talk a lot about the Oscars as well as the Emmys here, yeah. as you can imagine. You're on the board of Ampus. Yeah, yeah. So can you? Is there going to be a host this year? Can you tell us? Yeah, I have. You know, I can't <laughs> reveal anything at all. Sorry, <laughs> I can only I just talk about a, I'd ask. I can only talk about a movie that we have that I love called Sword of Trust, which is a little movie by Lynn Shelton. Oh, um, gr- oh which love I can Lynn refer. Shelton. Yeah, oh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah she's yeah. wonderful. We've done movies with her in the past and sort of stars Mark Maron and it's out now. Uh, yep, so yep, I'll yep. give it a teeny plug and it's really pretty wonderful and quite original and it's a bad description is it's in the mumble core. Oh yes, broadly. of course. Well, she's, yeah, yeah. One of the... Joe Swanberg and, mm-hmm, yeah, and, mm-hmm. uh, but it's actually sort of trust is, a, is, is pretty, I think it's pretty special. Yeah. How do you, how do you approach finding talent or, or, or deciding what kind of talent to work with? 
You know, I think it's often, uh, it, well, we're staffed to do that. I mean, yeah. the, the idea we have is to work with people who are both established and brand new. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we have a development process and we mm-hmm. read. People other than I read yeah. lots of material. And, and in TV, it is often, I think it's fair to say, not insubstantially on the page. Right. You can read a script and see or or people smarter than me can see what's really there. Right. And so I think you can actually have a pretty good idea. So it really does begin with the script. Do you, have, do you guys have, obviously you have so many different <clears throat> networks that it's hard to say this, but is there any unifying set of things where you're like, that's not for us, or this is, this is very us, this one, not so much? You know, very different for different channels. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and so yeah. I, and you know, it was a nice, uh, I hope this isn't just flattery. Um, there's a lot of cable channels in the world, mm-hmm. and uh, we were happy to have four of our five have Emmy nominations, yeah. which is nice recognition. And I said it not, I hope, just to flatter ourselves, but to say that the IFC documentary now is reflective of exactly what IFC is, and Sundance, and Sundance now, I think, is well reflected by State of the Union, mm-hmm. and Killing Eve, I think, is also well represented in terms of what it intends to be by Killing Eve, and the same with AMC for Better Call Saul. Yeah. So, uh, so the answer to your question of what do we look for is our brands do, we believe, have character and characteristics yes. stand for something. Yeah. I think one can't be heavy-handed about what that means, but I think it's important to be true to what you want to be right. and what you want people to think of you. So there's a filter. Yep. Um, and then beneath that, there's great story, great writing, great right. craft. The kind of the fundamentals. Yeah, the real have fundamentals. To be right. uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I think, uh, you know, um, yes, but I think that there is the essentials of the sort of brand filter, if you want to call it that. But, th- but then you have been doing this cross-network strategy, right? With, yeah. And the, with uh, a discovery of witches yeah. in, in February and so on. So there, so there are times where you think, oh, let's put this in front of yeah. a, the audience of a different yeah. channel and so see if they like it. Yeah, it's not binary. Um, yeah. and, and certain things, of course, uh, bump up against one another. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think our instinct when we saw Killing Eve was, wow, many, many, many people should see this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it mm-hmm. will be loved widely. Yeah. And so we should make sure that occurs. Yeah. What's one thing that you want our listeners to watch that, that you love that, that maybe they may not be familiar with, hmm. other than the Lynn Shelton film? Other <laughs> than the Lynn Shelton film. Uh, uh, well, I'm trying to think. You know, the, the, unfortunately, the answer that, I was, that immediately comes to mind is something that's no longer on. It'll come back to us out of license called rectify oh yeah so mm-hmm. so i don't so i should be more self-serving and say watch this and we'll count the well, viewers that's okay you're just scoring points with them if you turn them on to something cool but, but you then... know but rectify is uh it didn't get uh award recognition um it's done by this guy named ray mckinnon it's right. really singular who was in, in deadwood right yeah and yeah. it's singular in its beauty it's completely rare yeah. and I think it's a little like nothing else that's ever been on TV. And so if I'm, if people have the patience, uh, because it's slow moving, but it's a thing of, it's a TV thing of just absolute beauty, I would refer them to uh, Rectify. And what is on our air that has somewhat similar qualities is something called Lodge 49. Yes, right. And Lodge uh-huh. 49 is executive produced 
by Paul uh, Giamatti with his partner Dan Carey, and I think it's um, and written by Jim Gavin, who's by the way also a great, great writer and short story writer. Oh, yes. Writes about yeah, he writes about mm-hmm. um, if you want to pick up his book uh, mm-hmm. books. Um, he writes a little bit about life off the grid in Southern California. Right. And it's, I think it will be discovered, and I think people are starting to now write, I read, oh my goodness, the best undiscovered show that's on television right now yeah. is Lodge 49. Well, you and your team have brought us many great, great shows and introduced us to lots of things we'd never seen on television before. So thank you for that. Good luck at the oh. Emmys. And thanks for, thanks for coming by thanks to talk so to us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, what a pleasure. So now we're going to share an excerpt from an interview that we did in collaboration with the Talk House podcast. They really focused on conversations between creative people, and this time they helped us wrangle Ruben Oslin, the Swedish director of Force Majeure and the Square, to talk to Lulu Wang, whose uh, film The Farewell has really been tearing up the entire summer box office. And uh, what's interesting is that Lulu was kind of given a choice. It was like, who do you want to talk to? And Ruben Oslin was on the top of her list. And they hadn't really met before. She says at the beginning of the conversation that they met when uh, her boyfriend, Barry Jenkins, which I was you know, as a fan of both of them, was excited to hear her talk about. He presented Ruben Awesome with an award. Uh, but anyway, it's this kind of rare chance to uh, hear two filmmakers talk to each other and kind of get into what they hope their movies do. And he talks about how he felt really personally affected by The Farewell. So it was fun for me to listen to, and I hope you guys enjoy it. And if you want to hear the entire conversation, you can go find the TalkHouse podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Ruben. How are you? Can you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so excited to talk to you. We, we didn't meet directly, but sort of in passing a few years ago when my boyfriend is Barry Jenkins, he presented your award. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, but really nice to talk to you and, and thank you so much for the film. You know, I requested, they asked me who I would like to speak to and I said, of course, ideally it would be uh, Ruben, but nobody told me that you had agreed and, and I just found out yesterday. So I'm very, very excited. Um, your work is a huge inspiration for me. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, I have heard uh, people talking about the farewell and uh, then when I, uh, Nick uh, sent me your name and then I was like, yeah, of course, I, I would like to do that. So I, I think I, uh, I like the setup of this format that uh, two film directors are talking to each other. Uh, so I'm curious if we will uh, get to any interesting content, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. I would like to start actually because I I watched The Farewell uh, last night. I got the link quite late, but I watched it uh, last night and uh, I would like to say thank you so much for the movie. I thought it was interesting because I could relate very much to the story, even if I don't have any of that kind of background. Mm -hmm. It was very touching and um, I think I related a lot to it because my mother comes from the northern part of Sweden. So she's brought up in Haparanda, mm-hmm. uh, that is quite far away from where I was brought up in, in Göteborg, in Gothenburg, on the west coast of Sweden. But I could really relate to like uh, your parents leaving China and then moving and you growing up uh, in another country. And I would say that my mother, I've always felt a little bit, you know, almost misplaced that that there there was something about her that she said that she would move back when she got older and so on but then I got kids and uh, she was then staying here in Göteborg with me Mm -hmm. uh, because of their grandchildren of course but I had 
a similar experience when I met my grandfather the last time. That was really, really beautiful portrayed in your film when you were when you were living in the car. Mm-hmm. And the last uh, glimpse, or how do you say, of, of your grandmother. I was up in Haparanda uh, with my daughters and uh, I realized this is probably the last time I would see my grandfather. And uh, since I don't don't visit Haparanda that often. Mm-hmm. And we were leaving in the car, you know, like we were saying goodbye at the entrance of the door and then uh, getting into the car. And I could see that even he he had such a problem of walking, he, he would stand up and look through the window, the kitchen window, and try to get the last glimpse of us. And it was so touching. And and when I saw it, it was like, it was striking me immediately in the same way that, that you portrayed uh, the scene in the film. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Wow. Yeah, it is. It's so hard to, uh, in a way, like, they they want to have a last glimpse, but I think there's also this sense of dignity of, um, you know, as a human being, like wanting to stand, wanting to come downstairs, wanting to say goodbye and holding on as as much as possible. Like people have told me that in in their experience, they've experienced something similar where, you know, their grandmother or grandfather also will like touch the car as it's driving mm. away. Uh-huh. So, so it's um it's it's so interesting to hear that immigration and this sense of distance and uh, mm. displacement it's it's not just as extreme as uh, an immigrant from China moving to the United States. I think that you know as the world is getting bigger but getting smaller in many ways that everyone senses this kind of displacement because we're not g- growing up and all living you know multiple generations in the same town. Mm-hmm. My parents, the history of, of, of my family and why, you know, we moved for mostly political reasons. My father came to the U.S. to study, to get his Ph.D., um, but my father used to be a diplomat for the Chinese mm-hmm. government since the age of nine and um, went to the Soviet Union at the age of 16. And then when he was 30, I think 33 is when he moved to America and he Uh, later started working for the State Department. But I've always found his story very interesting because he was raised from, a, a, you know, the, the age of a, as a child to be a nationalist, to, to, to love country. Mm-hmm. And yet I think later he felt very betrayed by the trust that he put and, and the value that he put as a, you know, belonging to the state that he would be taken care of always, and he and he wasn't. Um, and then when he came to the U.S., he very much embraced being an American. He thought, well, this is a place where you can really put your trust in the state and um, mm. really, really wanted to be seen as American, wanted to be an American, wanted to work for the government. But, of course, because of his history, he could never build enough trust. There was, it was, there was no way that he could ever get past the background checks And so in a way, he is this um, somebody who from a young age has been trained to give up the sense of individual and devote his life to country. And now in his older age, it's like, well, what country do I truly belong to? Because nobody will have me. Mm -hmm. And it brings up this question of like, you know, how do we identify? Is it by blood? Is it by where your heart belongs? Is it by politics? You know, is it by culture? Like these are all very different things. And yet 
even in modern society, we're asked to be very reductive about it. And it's like, what are you? Mm. And and you, your identity, what do you feel about your identity when you, how many percentage do you feel Chinese and how many percentage do you feel American? <laughs> um, I feel pretty American. I, I mean, you know, I feel, I feel, I would say I feel a hundred percent American, but it's how do other people look at me? You know, there's moments in which like internally, I've never felt more American than when I'm in China. That's when I realized, oh, I am very, very American. I am, of course. Uh, But, Mm. you know, there's, of course, moments in which you're reminded that you are not seen this way. You know, like a few years ago, I was in Nantucket at a bar and uh, just trying to get a drink. And this very tall guy was uh, kind of pushy and wouldn't let me through. And I was like, excuse me, you know, can I just grab a drink? And and he's like, just go back to China. Uh, go, he goes, he said, go back to Japan. And mm. I was so stunned by that. And I wasn't sure if I should comment on his ignorance first <laughs> or, or just and laugh at his ignorance or, or, yeah. or be offended. I didn't even know what to say in that yeah. moment. Um, I just kind of stood up on a bar and threatened to punch him. Mm. Which showed how American I am. <laughs> I yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you react with violence. <laughs> it, yeah. It's true. Yeah. I think it's interesting. With um, I mean, in these times, also of course, uh, when we're talking about how we are dealing with racism and things like that, and I made a film that was that is called Play that uh, yes. was based on events that took place in Gothenburg where I live where it was a group of young young boys that was robbing other young boys and and the robbers they had one thing in common and they it was that they were black mm-hmm. and uh, they were like 12 years old or something these boys that, that were doing the robberies and then they they were really really aware of how to use uh, like the stigmatized image of the black man the dangerous black man that Swedish kids only have gotten to know through media experiences mm-hmm. from, from, from fiction films, etc., etc. And um, uh, I think in Sweden now, when it comes to like how media is, uh, is trying to deal with these things, we have an extreme right-wing party that is called the Sweden Democrats. And uh, people are like, um, like screaming racists uh, mm-hmm. about them all the time, over and over again. Mm-hmm. And every stupid comment they do Uh, that is like a racist comment gets fully exposure in the in the in the papers. Mm-hmm. So it's like bringing out the bad behavior, giving it oxygen over and over again. And I was thinking about my daughters then that then is going in a school uh, when they was younger, when they were going from grade one to grade nine. Then they have a lot of different ethnicities and backgrounds on the kids. And they have never heard about the idea about racism. Mm-hmm. And then uh, all of a sudden when they get a little bit older, then they learn that, okay, there's something in, uh, in this society that's called racism. And uh, the one that is put up for racism are like your, or some of your classmates. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly they are trained into this way of thinking. So um, I, I think it's very, it, it's an interesting topic how to handle it and how to deal with it. And, and in which occasions you should give these kind of problems Uh, oxygen and, and bring it up or in which uh, situations you, you should just like, I'm, I won't go there. I, don't, I won't comment on this guy. I won't, I won't say anything. So, yeah. Yeah, I love that. I, I love play so much uh, because I was really surprised when I watched it because I feel like 
so much, so many stories in the world now because in a way you almost can't uh, separate news with fiction, you know. And so all all the stories in the world right now are creating a very distinct binary: good versus bad, racist or not racist. And mm. I found it so interesting to explore all of the nuances and sort of the self-awareness of how to utilize things and what does knowledge do for, like, what does that awareness do for the characters and and utilizing that? I don't know if that makes sense, but I just, I, I love that it's um, it's not clean, you know? It starts a conversation and that people might disagree, but that it's really nuanced um, because... I find myself asking a lot of questions that I'm afraid to say in mm. the world because it's almost like if the, the minute that you start arguing on one side, then you must be labeled as X, Y, Z, right? Yeah. And so, for example, like what you were just saying, I, I experienced this recently with the Me Too movement where I said, you know, I started talking to my mom and I said, you know, like all of this stuff is reminding me of this... Um, neighbor that we had. Uh, do you remember? Like he, he used to like grab all the kids in the pool and he would chase after the girls. And one time he, he locked us in the house and, uh, and, and tried to pull his pants down. And, you know, I came and I told you about that. And she's, and I said, you know, but back then, like, like nothing happened to him, right? He wasn't arrested or anything like that. And I, and, and I, I said, and I told you about that. And she said, yeah. And I told you just to stay away from him. And mm. she said, she said, you know, like, I just, you came and told me and I said, you know, just don't go near him and <laughs> didn't make a big deal out of it. And I really thought about that. I said, you really didn't make a big deal out of it. And it, it never really it traumatized me in a way maybe that it should have. And do you think that it's because, like, what do you think that is? Do you think it's be, like, in a way, I, I can't help but think if my, if my parents made a really big deal out of it and they yeah. had the man arrested and they told me, oh, my God, this is so wrong. Like, it would have put so much of the shame and weight on me as a child. But in many ways, it was just like my mom just said, you know, he's a gross man. Like, just don't go near him. And, mm. and, and so there was a levity to it where it was gross and it was icky and we stayed away, but it didn't continue yeah. to impact me emotionally. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, sorry, continue. No, so that's all, that's all I would, and I made this short film um, called Touch that explores that because in some older parts of uh, some villages, you know, oftentimes it's, cultures that are not exposed to Western media and um, media in general. Um, but it's it's kind of cultural that uh, sometimes older people will just touch children's private parts. Um, and so especially older men and little boys, but not in a sexual way. Um, a lot of times it's a, a sign of affection or a sign of uh, you know, virility, that it's a, it's because it's great to have a boy. It's great to have a son in the family. And so my mm. father, because he's a translator, um, came across several of these cases while he was working uh, for the State Department of uh, people who came to the U.S. as immigrants and worked at a flea market or some kind of a job where they didn't have a lot of access to Westerners and didn't speak English. But there were like three different cases where the men was in a bathroom or somewhere and um, touched somebody. Mm. And to, to, in their mind, it's very innocent. It's, in their mind, mm. it's, 
you know, like they knew the family. So when they saw the, the, the boy, uh, and I depict this in the short film in Touch, you, you see the way he touches. It's, it's just, oh, you're so cute. Oh my God, look how cute. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the older brother sees it and runs out of the bathroom, tells the mom, and it spirals into this really big thing. Yeah. And, uh, and then my father, as a translator, has to try and explain to, between the judge and, and without defending, because the judge is saying, well, do you think this is ethically right? Is this in China? Is this like, is this like mm. a cultural tradition? And he's like, well, I don't want to call it a tradition because it's not <laughs> like something that we all like, you know, applaud and think this is a great ritual, but it's, it's a habit. You could say that it's a habit that isn't looked down upon and, and it is cultural. Like he, he didn't have a sense of awareness and, and how do you educate an immigrant on all of these nuances of culture? Right. So, so he did it without knowing, but so then because he has a different context, how do you punish him and through what lens and, and for that child, if he's told that this is sexual and this is bad, does he grow up to think that, you know, does he carry all that shame? Whereas mm. if you're a child and you're told like, that's, that's just your grandpa, he doesn't mean anything by it because in his mind, how can you sexual, this is a young child, there's a sexuality doesn't even come into it for him, you know? Mm. So, so it's, there's an innocence to it, but, yeah. but, but the law comes in and spins it. And I think I started to think about two things when you tell me this story. I would love to see the short film. Um, please send a link yeah. uh, if you have one. Absolutely. Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking about two things. One was like during the Second World War when um, all the men had left Berlin and were uh, in war. So the German uh, German men were out and uh, like dealing with the Second World War. And there were a lot of Russian soldiers in Berlin. And... Uh, uh, there was a lot of rapes happening on the, on the German women. And uh, the way that they were dealing with this was that they were considering it as a nature disaster, basically. Like, oh my God, it's raining. Oh no, I have to run, it's raining. Mm-hmm. I, I got away from the rain. Oh no, I ended up in the rain. Uh, uh, and uh, <laughs> that made it mentally possible for them to deal with it. They mm-hmm. didn't do it into anything that was personally aimed towards them. Mm. Uh, but the problem happened then when the men come home after the war. Then like when the, when the shame was put into it and then it became a huge problem to deal with it. Uh, and the other thing that I was thinking about is um, um, when it comes to, for example, sexuality, when it comes to our new times, uh, when we are using our phones and so on and we're sending pictures to each other mm-hmm. and the concept of shame porn, mm-hmm. where uh, you're taking a picture of like uh, yeah, a girl, of course, that have, have been nude. I don't have heard about it really when boys are exposed in that way. And they are put up these pictures on the internet. And I had a friend of mine, I, it's a controversial idea, but he, he is quite fun in, in twisting and turning our minds when we are thinking about these things. And he said, well, the best way of dealing with shame porn is that everybody have to put a nude picture of themselves on the internet mm. because then it will be no problem anymore. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting with what, what you say about your short film because uh, I, I, really need, I, I really like films that is like making us see things from a different perspective. And we also have to ask questions about our own culture. And, and not accept the consensus. I, I love when, when our consensus are uh, questioned and, and we have to write, try to rethink, is we actually doing this in the best way? Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I've read interviews where you talk about um, 
the media and the intention because they need clicks. And so it's all about not resolving a conflict, but um, actually creating more conflict, right? And so that you, yeah. you, you can tell by the headlines even, right, the way that they... And I've done interviews as well where I talk for a very, very long time and then the headline gets narrowed down into like one very kind of a clickbaity kind of headline. And Have you experienced this now with uh, with your new film? Oh yes, absolutely, um, and, and and not in a negative way. I think the journalists aren't trying to put me in a negative light, but just to kind of make a statement. And mm. and but I can't help but think to myself, well, it's much more complicated than that, you know. But and then yeah. and, but then of course, if you read the comments, which I really try not to, but once in a while I do go down that. Uh, rabbit hole and the comments are in reaction to a headline yeah and because I'm Asian and I'm a female director and it's it's about like one side or the other and I'm either pro or I'm against and it's like it's, you know I'm just trying to tell a story about my family you know and I wanted to fight for the specificity of the story because that's my experience, you know, that I'm just trying to put my experience up on screen like anybody else. And yes, it's a political statement because there's so few people who look like me doing it, but it's also not a political statement because it's just my family and I'm just a human trying to tell my story. Hmm. Yeah, sometimes when I'm thinking about like the things that is going on on the internet, it's almost like, okay, we have to start to consider that the world that is digital in a different way from, from the world when we are meeting people in an analog way, when we actually have a meeting. Because my feeling is that we we actually are behaving quite nice to each other. Mm. It's very off, uh, seldom, I mean, that that uh, someone is doing something rude or are reacting in the way that, that um, is constantly brought up by media or in the commenting fields or so on. I mean, uh, you're... Your experience in the bar for me is like sounds like something that doesn't happen that often. But when if you look at the internet, people have a anonymous uh, thing to, to to hide themselves about, and then then it's almost like there's a certain kind of behavior that is brought up that we have to start to think about. Okay, this is actually not saying the truth about human beings. It's a it's a behavior that maybe now when uh, we are living in a new time when uh, we have the possibility to express ourselves and be anonymous, it will hopefully go back to uh, that we are uh, trained in and and also understand that uh, that we have to uh, be like editors of our own comments. Mm-hmm. That we actually actually have a responsibility as a publisher when we are publishing something, uh, and um, yeah. Do you think a lot about responsibilities in your films? Because you've talked a lot about not having violence in your films because you haven't experienced it, and I really resonate with that because I do think that there's so much romanticization of violence in the media, especially American uh, media and American storytelling, uh, you know, that yeah. you, you can have guns and people getting their heads blown off, but you can't show a woman's nipple. Yeah. And so I do wonder like the people who are telling those stories, have they ever actually experienced that kind of violence? And if they did, would they have a different point of view? Yeah. No, I, I definitely think that that is the, one of the most interesting thing to be a film director and one of the most important things. What kind of experience are we 
handing over to the audience? Is it experiences that we have from the cinema world or is it something that we have uh, a connection to in our life for real? Is this, uh, is this references that on how we look on the world or is it uh, like something that is... Uh, Fantasy? Uh, fiction on a way that, that <laughs> he created from a fictionalized world. And uh, I think that in the same way, if you're having a conversation with someone, you don't start to lie. You don't start to say, don't walk in that part of the city because it's super dangerous to be there if it's not true. Mm. That is unethical. Mm -hmm. And the same thing, of course, goes for cinema. Why should you start to lie about your experience in life? Your images will create the behavior. Your images will change people's behavior. And I think that um, moving images is one of the expressions that is probably uh, changing human behavior more than anything else, uh, more than still image even. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, um, there are scientists that is talking about like that. Uh, if you look on our memories, um, like 70% of our memories today are comes from mass media. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> uh, if we look at that, then of course how we express ourselves about the world through fiction film is going to have a great impact on how people look at the world. Uh, so, so I think that is something that is very important to, to relate to and have an idea about. Then you're of course allowed to use your knowledge in any way you want. I, I'm, I'm not saying that we should have a, have a censorship and you're not allowed to express your wildest fantasies, but at least we should be aware of that. Uh, images, the more they are spread out, the more they will change people's behavior. And I don't think it matters if it's... Because when I, when I was brought up, then it was like a, a difference between documentary images or things that is said in the news or what's in the fiction films. Then it was like these are three separated uh, categories and fiction films is, is not affecting how we behave. I don't believe in that at all because mm-hmm. I think with little time aspect on when we have experienced these uh, images, we can separate them from a real life experience or, or not. Well, that does it for this week's episode. Uh, we should note that the Emmy's phase two special issue that we all worked on is rolling out online now. So you can read Richard writing about what will happen uh, with the Emmys when Game of Thrones and Veep kind of walk away. And then Joanna also wrote about Game of Thrones because you guys really, uh, you guys were sunk into Westeros at that point. Um, and there's a lot of other great stories out there, too, so you can look for them rolling out on VF.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own, Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Jarothis. And me, I forgot. I'm a Katie Rich. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of this entire podcast goes to Richard Lawson. They're bougie concerns, you know. 